will be preached from 1 Timothy 4, 1 through 5. But the Spirit explicitly says that in later times some will fall away from the faith, paying attention to deceitful spirits, doctrines of demons, by means of the hypocrisy of liars, seared in their own conscience as with a branding iron, men who forbid marriage and advocate abstaining from foods which God has created to be gratefully shared shared in by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with gratitude. For it is sanctified by means of the word of God and prayer. This is the word of the Lord. Our lives hang on the importance of words. We live by words, and when words are strung together, they communicate messages to us. Think how often the messages that we hear each day are not merely words that are given for information exchange, but that are given to convince you to persuade you, to teach you. Whether it's in songs, whether it's on the screen, in our ears, before our eyes, teachers are aiming to change you. And some of those teachers are true and good teachers. And some of those teachers are false and dangerous teachers. And it's it's a bit easier to navigate whenever the false teachers put wildly erroneous, crazy, absurd messages in front of us. But what about those messages that aren't overtly false, that are harder to pick up on? You see, sometimes when false teaching is before our eyes, it can look nice. Sometimes when false teaching is in our ears, it can sound best. And like true teachers, false teachers desire to influence how you think and how you feel and how you act in the world. And so how do we discern which teachers and which teachings are false and which are true. In part, that's why Paul has written the letter of 1 Timothy to his protege. Timothy was a young pastor of a church that was full of relatively new converts, and he found that elders were 
standing up preaching and teaching things that were false, that were misleading, and that were contrary to the gospel itself. And that was destroying this church in Ephesus. And Paul draws a battle line in the sand, clearly opposing doctrine that is not consistent with the one standard and source of absolute truth, and that is the Word of God. That's what 2 Timothy, in the follow-up letter, that's what Paul mentions in 2 Timothy chapter 3, that all of Scripture is inspired by God. It is literally breathed out by God and profitable for teaching and for reproof and for correction and for training in righteousness so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. And so Paul's example back then serves you and I today because the unchanging words that he held up as the standard of absolute truth, they haven't changed. And they still, this day, are the standard and the absolute truth. And so we too must learn how to discern false teaching. We must learn how to identify false teachers. We must learn how to build our lives upon the truth. And as Bob encouraged us last week, building our lives upon the truth doesn't merely mean that we're able to recognize truth or notice truth. It means that we joyfully submit to truth. That we seek to live godly lives, which is what truth is encouraging us and encouraging us and pointing us to. The greatest defense against false teaching is a church community that knows the word of God. It's a church community that enjoys the word of God. It's a church community that lives upon the word of God. And so the stakes are in infinitely high, as we will see in our passage this morning. And because they're so high, I'd like for you to join me in prayer as we open the Word of God together. Our gracious Father, to approach your Holy Word faithfully is to do so with fear and trembling. Not only because we know that it convicts of our sin, we know that it is wrought with power and life. Your word kills, and your word brings life. Your word convicts, and your word redeems. Your word does something. And so as we approach your word this morning, I pray that we would do it with great expectation, that you would teach us how to lean more fully on your promises, that you would teach us how to joyfully bask in your faithfulness, May we toss off all that would hinder our hearing of your word and that would prevent us from fixing our eyes upon you. And so may we receive your word this morning with all joy, but not just receive it in learning, but receive it by putting it into faithful action that would proclaim your glory. Help us. Your servants are listening. We trust and believe that you speak through your word. Speak now, we pray, in the name of Jesus the Christ. Amen. If you have your Bibles, I would invite you to open them to 1 Timothy chapter 4. Uh, 
to encourage you, maybe even help you not wander off or doze off. If you have the Bible open in front of you, you will see and check everything that you hear with the word that's in front of you. If you uh, would like to follow along in the translation that I will be preaching from, there's a New American Standard Bible in the pewback. Feel free to open it up to the New Testament, page 163. In our passage this morning, we will see the calamity of false teaching. We will see the calamity of false teaching, and we will recognize its cure. And I do, I do just want to say, come to Life Church, that we need this word. We need this word because God's grace of protection over us doesn't merely come from a group of elders who insist on these things, but from a congregation in which every member insists on these things. The grace that we have experienced thus far in our 11 years of existence as it relates to false teaching and insisting on teaching the truth of God's word, that grace that we experience is meant to be preserved for future generations, not assumed. And may we be a church that's faithful to preserve that grace. And so this morning, I'd like to consider four ways that we can learn and be prepared in applying God's word from our passage this morning. Number one. Be prepared for some to turn away. Be prepared for some to turn away. We see this in verse 1. Listen again. But the Spirit explicitly says that in the, latter, in the later times, some will fall away from the faith, paying attention to deceitful spirits and the doctrines of the demons. And perhaps if you're a visitor, you're thinking, okay, I showed up. And we've got deceitful spirits and demon doctrine day, and people are falling away from the faith. Uh, I'm glad that you are here. I trust that this word will serve your soul this morning. Put yourself in young Timothy's shoes. If you go back to what Bob led us in last week, Paul has essentially crescendoed his letter at the end of chapter 3. He gives us and he paints this picture of the glorious reality of who the church is. The church is the household of God. It's the the church of the living God. It's the pillar and the support of truth. And as Timothy is reading this, certainly there must have been a sting, an ache in his soul to think, If this is the glorious reality of who the church is to be, then what in the world is wrong with this church? Just remember what he said in chapter 1. Men teaching strange doctrines and wrangling about with myths. Verses 3 and 4. Chapter 1, verses 6 through 10. Men that were wrongly teaching the law. How in the world were they being the buttress and the pillar, the support of truth? Or thinking, think about what Paul says in verses 19 and 20 of chapter 1. That Hymenaeus and Alexander have shipwrecked their faith. Many believe that these potentially were two elders of the church. And they had been handed over to Satan. 
It's as if Paul knew where Timothy's heart would be tempted to grow discouraged after painting the glorious reality of who the church is and rooting that in this beautiful confession, this hymn of praise that centers on the, on the, the center of the Christian faith itself, Christ, in verse 16 of chapter 3. And maybe knowing that this struggle would be there, Paul reminds Timothy that the Spirit said that it would be this way. In other words, it's as if Paul said, Timothy, you have not failed. The struggles that, you, that stare at you week in and week out in the, in the church is not an indication that God's plans have failed. It's not that because some are fallen away that therefore we need to sort of go back and regroup and come up with another plan. No, God's plan and his purposes are not thwarted. His church will still prevail. Keep fighting, my brother. Paul reminds Timothy that the Spirit, look at, look at again, verse 1, the Spirit explicitly says that in the later times some will fall away from the faith. It begs the question, when did the Spirit explicitly say this? What is it that's Paul, that Paul is referring to? Well, we're not told exactly. And so some people have written a lot about could this be a revelation that Paul had from the Spirit telling him these things, and uh, it most certainly could be. But I don't believe we have to dig into the realm of unknown to see how the Spirit has said this. It's clear all throughout the New Testament, beginning even with the words of Jesus himself. Matthew chapter 24, verses 10 and 11. Speaking about a future time, Jesus says, many will fall away and will betray one another and will hate, uh, and will hate one another. And many false prophets will arise and will mislead many. He says something similar in Mark chapter 13, verse 22. Think about the parable of the sower, Mark chapter 4. Jesus teaches that as the gospel goes out, as that seed is sown, there will be seed that shows signs of life only to either be plucked by the birds or to have weeds and thorns choke life out of them. Paul even, uh, and so Jesus is, is teaching that though there are signs of life, that doesn't necessarily mean that life will endure. And so not only do we have the words of Jesus, but Paul, even in other places, references this. Think about what Paul says. Uh, Acts chapter 20, Paul calls the Ephesian elders to himself. He calls them and has this beautiful, kind of poignant picture of a goodbye. And he lets them know, this is, this is uh, where I'm going, this is why I'm going, and this is what I charge you in my absence. And one of the things that he says in verses 29 and 30 of Acts chapter 20 is this, I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves, men will arise speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after them. Maybe Paul is mentioning that. He was led by the Spirit to say these things which have indeed come to pass for this church. Or think about what Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 
I deliver to you that which is of utmost importance. He goes through the gospel. Right before that, he says, you stand in this gospel. You don't, you don't stray away from it. You keep coming back to it unless you've believed in vain. Other New Testament authors inspired by the Holy Spirit would write the same truths. 1 John chapter 2, verse 19, John says, And they went out from us, but they were not really of us. For had they been of us, they would have remained with us, but they went out so that it would be shown that they are not all of us. Some who had identified with the Christian family, the faith family of God, had gone out. They had strayed. They had deserted. And John is writing to say, no, 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 this isn't, this isn't cause for, for concern that somehow God's plans are falling apart. This is only indicating and evidencing that they never really belonged. Hebrews 6, speak of those who taste the good word of God and then fall away. Peter and Jude warned the people of God of the danger of falling away. And all of those, all of those references have been been inspired by the Holy Spirit of God, attesting to this truth that Paul says, the Spirit explicitly says that in later times some will fall away from the faith. I love the present tense that's used there. The Spirit explicitly says. The Spirit speaks words of truth through the biblical words spoken yesterday. The Spirit's past words carry present significance. The old hymn writer understood this best when he said, what more can he say to you than he has said? There's no need for fresh new revelation. He has spoken. The Spirit explicitly says that in later times, that phrase, later times, it would mean our current times. Throughout the Bible, anytime later days or later times is used, it's referring to that that period of time between uh, Jesus being raised from the dead and ascended into heaven and until he returns. And we would find ourselves in that time. When Paul wrote this letter to Timothy, that would be in that time. We are living in the later times. And he says that in later times, some will fall away from the faith. The word there, fall away, that that verb, it means to depart from. It's it's a much stronger word than merely straying away from, or even the word that he used that sounds horrendous in chapter 1, that Hymenaeus and Alexander have shipwrecked their faith. This word is much more emphatic and strong. It means to revolt against. It means to rebel against. It means to defect in a purposeful and a deliberate way from a former position. And so what Paul is saying is that there will come a time, we are living in that time, when people will willfully rebel, willfully revolt, and leave the position that they have once held. The spiritual term for that position is called apostasy. Apostasy. I have braces. It may not sound 
weird to say, but I'm sorry if, it, if you just are taking notes and it's APOS, I, we can't even tell. Apostasy. Uh, some of you have known others who have apostatized. Some of you know others who have willfully defected, who have turned and walked away from the position and the faith that they once held and gave allegiance to. And while it's terribly sad when this happens, and I I do, I want to be aware, even as my prayer for you this week in preparation for the sermon, just thinking, going through, looking at the directory and just thinking, there are family members that you love who have walked away from the faith that they once professed. Some of you have been mentored and raised up by pastors and others who have walked away from the faith that they once professed. I was even just praying this week, going, God, would you allow this not just to be a truth that I lay over top from your word, but allow there to be empathy. I know there are deep wounds. I know there are stinging hurts. And there's an appropriate need for lament. The category of just crying out to God on the basis of what is wrong. Not in cynicism, but in broken-hearted pain. And so I, I am well aware that it is a terribly sad thing when professing believers walk away from the faith that they profess. But I'm also aware that it shouldn't shipwreck our faith. Though it is immensely sad, it shouldn't be earth-shattering, shocking. The Bible says this will happen. Jesus has said this would happen. The New Testament authors have said this would happen. And when it happens, it doesn't mean that Christ promised in Matthew 16, 18 that he will build his church is somehow faltering. No, in fact, it just gives evidence that like all other things, God has always known best. He's always known this would happen. And I believe there's another question that's begged of us this morning as we work through this passage, and that is this. Can a Christian who has gone from uh, death to life, who has been united to Christ, who trusts fully and truly in Christ alone for salvation, can that person lose their salvation? Can that person walk away from the faith? You see, the same Bible that mentions those departing the faith also makes clear that God has a mighty arm to save. That same Bible also makes clear that Christ has strong hands that keep his grasp on his children and no one, nothing can snatch his people out of his hands. And so no, Paul is not writing to Timothy to say there are some who will belong to to Christ, and yet whose unbelief will be stronger than the grip of Christ. That is not what Paul is saying here. Paul is saying that true believers 
cannot and will not lose their salvation. The Bible speaks to those who make a profession of faith and then eventually by their renouncing of that faith later on, they reveal that they never experienced this saving faith in the first place. And again, I would just encourage you to go back and to look at the ways in which the Word of God speaks to those who seemingly, I mean, Hebrews 6, who seemingly have tasted and walk away. And how do we reconcile that with the truth that Christ loses none of his own? How do we reconcile that with the truth that those whom he predestined, and you follow the trail in Romans chapter 8, verse 30, those whom he predestined, they end up being the ones who are glorified. There's no break in the chain. It's strong, and it's strong not because of the faith of man. It's strong because of the promises and the faithfulness of the God who holds man. True Christians will persevere to the end. And if I can just say a word to my brothers and sisters in the faith this morning. This was written much like Hebrews chapter 3, verse 20. And I just turned to Hebrews 3.20, and there's not a Hebrews 3.20. Um, all right, this is... Uh, oh, 3.12, sorry. <laughs> Hebrews 3.12. Just like Hebrews 3.12, I believe 1 Timothy chapter 4 was written for the likes of you and me. Take care, brethren, that there are not any one of you, there is not, uh, be not in any one of you an evil, unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God, but encourage one another day after day, as long as it is still called today, so that none of you will be hardened by the deceitfulness of your sin. Brothers and sisters in Christ, fight to fan into flame the things which keep you white hot in your worship to God. And encourage one another to do the same. If we do not encourage one another, we can become hardened in our hearts because of the deceitfulness of sin. Your one-time profession or your membership in a church that seeks to be healthy isn't going to preserve you ultimately. It's going to be your daily, your daily fight to both safeguard your soul, but also to safeguard the souls of brothers and sisters around you. We can go to all the right places, we can know all the right words, we can act in all the right ways, all the while being spiritually rotten and decaying on the inside. And so allow this word to serve us, who because of grace are, are saved and do belong to Christ. That is not license to coast the rest of the way to glory. We run the risk of having our hearts hardened by the deceitfulness of sins. Some of us are eerily close to falling away because our heart is not engaged with God. It's not soft to God. It's not interested in the things of God. We would rather give ourselves to pleasures and possessions and career and comforts, seeking to carve out our identity somewhere else because we don't really care to keep looking for it in Christ. 
And perhaps the most sobering thing, one of the most sobering things I will say all sermon is this. Statistics show that not all of us who are in this room today who profess to belong to Christ, statistics show that we will not remain. Not all of us will remain to the end. And so can I just plead with you, fight for your soul and fight for one another. Take this as a gracious warning. The check engine light has popped on. Stop playing games. Let's stop making allowances for sin. And let's seek to walk in repentance and in newness of life. And did you catch how they would fall away? They'll fall away by paying attention to deceitful spirits and the doctrines of demons. Apostasy, the falling away, is generated by demons. I'm not saying that it's good for us to turn over every rock and to try to find the the demon connection. But Paul did say in Ephesians chapter 6 that we do not war against flesh and blood, but against spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. And what he's saying is that this isn't doctrine about demons, it's doctrine promoted by demons. Paying attention to deceitful spirits and the doctrines of demons. That word, that verb they're paying attention means to devote oneself to. It means clinging to. The reality of spiritual battles in a spiritual realm may seem odd to us, but they are as historic as Genesis chapter 3. That which stands in opposition to the word of God is demonic. And so how will the enemy seek to propagate such demonic teaching? Leads us to point number two. Beware of false teachers. Beware of false teachers. These Christians, these professing Christians are susceptible to these demonic doctrines, how in the world are these demonic doctrines finding their way to these professing Christians? Through false teachers. Satan is the one who's ultimately behind all apostasy, but he's working through false teachers. And Paul calls these false teachers liars. They're liars. Not only are they they liars, but their consciences are seared as with a branding iron. Their deception is so deep that they've even deceived themselves. This is what John Milton talks about when he writes Paradise Lost. And he explains that what fuels Satan's work is that he has fooled even himself into thinking that his cause is never lost. Satan has deceived himself into thinking that he can actually overthrow God. And there's deceit at the core. And when deceit is at the core, it only produces more deceit. Jesus says, in this world, you will have tribulation. And we hear that and we can begin to think, enemies out there. I think one of, arguably, one of our greatest enemies in this life are lies. Lies come from Satan. John chapter 8, verse 44. The lies of Satan are what plunged this world into the curse of sin. Go back to Genesis chapter 3 and just see how the enemy lied. 
Lies are arguably one of your greatest enemies. And it's not just the lies that other people will tell you. Perhaps your most consistent enemy are the lies that you tell yourself. And worst of all are those lies that are about God. Lies about God are everywhere. Literally, they're everywhere. That's the environment of this mission and this great commission that we have been. We're not living in neutral environments seeking to do something good. We are living in a literally a sea of lies. The latter the later days, our current times, it's swarming with opposition to truth. Satan hates truth, he hates the church, he hates Christians, he hates who those that are on the brink of becoming Christians. Paul says this is what we're up against. Right now we are behind enemy lines. We are seeking to advance and defend the gospel in a world full of deceit. And the world is hostile to truth. And people are being led astray. These false teachers who spout lies do so because they have a seared conscience. Have you ever left an iron on an article of clothing a little bit too long? Some of you have. We've all noticed a joke. a joke. But if you have, and what ends up happening is the fabric is, is seared. Maybe even a little smoke will rise up from the melted, hardened fabric. I have done this. I have a pair of shorts that are rough in one spot because I went over what I thought were threads and they were plastic, I think. Maybe. Anyway, the shorts are ruined. And this is how Paul describes the conscience of these false teachers. That little alarm system that sounds off in your head when you are thinking or doing something wrong, that alarm system can be silenced. And some of us know all too well. When you listen to enough untruth, rest assured that the day is coming where you will not be able to recognize truth. Your conscience can be silenced. Your conscience can become indifferent to the word of God and to the gospel of grace and to the truth. Have you ever noticed this in yourself? When the word of God is no longer a priority in your life, the world rushes in and we can become hardened to the truth. This shows in our day, uh, in our thoughts, in our desires, in what we say, in what we do. Our conscience Though not the most reliable guide, especially when we are in bondage to our sin, it can serve as a friend. And you can abuse and silence that friend. No matter how mature you think you are, no matter what your vocation is, no matter how many seminary degrees you have, no matter how long you've been a Christian, our consciences can be seared towards truth about God. And false teaching doesn't just show up in the church behind pulpits or podiums. There are lies about God and His Word all over your news feeds, the conversations that you have at coffee shops, the, at your workplace. And perhaps what's dangerous is that in local churches, we come here to hear the truth. 
and how easy it is for us to meditate on what the world says as opposed to what God says. I'm helped by what Mark Dever has said. He says, to abort one's own conscience is to deafen one's own spiritual ears. It's to put out one's own spiritual eyes. That book that you're reading, that drink that you're having, that friend that you're making, that business practice that you're engaging, that misrepresentation that you're making, that bending of the facts so that you get your result. Dever says, don't fool yourself. In all of those things, you may think that other people around you are most affected, but you are wrong. The one who is most affected and most often affected by the sliding of the conscience is you. Every time that you find it much easier to not obey or to not report this or to sneak this substance or to watch this or to say that or to go here or to listen to that, every time you hold an intensing, cauterizing heat to the very nerve endings of your God-given morality. And the chilling truth is that there will come a time where you hold that cauterizing heat to those nerve endings and it will be the last time that you feel anything before you stand before your maker. Better to allow your conscience to express itself fully now than to deny it and to silence it only to be stored up for that last day of judgment when no one's conscience will be silent. Perhaps this morning you've wandered away when you hold the things that you've done up against the grid of God's word, when you hold the things that you've thought and the things that you've said up against God's word, you know that it's wrong. And perhaps you find yourself today in a place where you thought, I never would imagine I would have gotten here. I want to invite you back to the gracious God who welcomes back humble, repentant sinners. God is good, and he invites you back. And the good news is that what you have once seared, God, by his Holy Spirit, can soften again. And he can do it because of a work that has been done by Christ. He's in the business of taking stony hearts and calloused conscience and softening them. If you are one who fears that you have seared your sensitivities to God, you think that you've cauterized your conscience, pray, even in this moment, silently, that God would take this concern of your heart, would supernaturally convict you of your sin, and would show you that everything that you need, he has provided in and through his son, Jesus Christ. Pray that he would cause your conscience to come to life. And he would mend what your sin has laid in disrepair. It leads us to the question of, well, what do false teachers teach? And it leads us to our third point. Our third point. Be discerning of false teaching. Be discerning of false teaching. Look at what he says in verse 3. These men who were liars, whose consciences were seared, they forbid marriage and advocate abstaining from foods which God has created to be 
gratefully shared in by those who believe and know the truth. False teaching can be subtle. False teaching can make its way into a body through something as practical as marriage and food. It's not always clothed in denials of historic doctrines of the faith. This false teaching that Paul is referencing is really a form of legalism. It says they forbid marriage. Singleness was a gift with advantages that Paul mentions that were worthy of honoring. But the Bible is also clear that there's nothing wrong with marriage according to God's word and according to his will. In fact, the Bible will go even a step further to not say there's nothing wrong with marriage according to God's word and according to his will, but that it is a good thing. It is a gift. And so to forbid marriage is to violate the teaching of Scripture. But they also forbid foods. There's nothing wrong with fasting. It's a good discipline. But God has made it clear that all foods are clean. Mark chapter 7, verse 19. I would even encourage you to read the story of Peter in Acts chapter 10, particularly in the first 18 verses. What was happening was the influence of the day was seeping into the church. And the line of thinking was this, that the physical was bad and that pleasure in the body was unspiritual and it was sinful. Only the spiritual things are that which is good. And so what do these false teachers do? They take something that may have even begun with a good desire to not be swept away by saying, we can do what we want in the body. And they begin to build rules. And they begin to build their rules, not, uh, they begin to build their fence protecting not the scriptures, not what the word of God has said, but protecting their rules on top of those scriptures. At the end of the day, they're trusting in themselves. And they're unwilling to trust in what God has said. They were setting their own view of the Christian life over the view that God had revealed in his word. They were forbidding what God allowed in his word. And whenever you forbid what God allows, it's only a matter of time before you begin to allow what God has forbid. And I believe this is true. Whenever you begin to forbid what God allows, which is what these false teachers were doing, it's only a matter of time before you begin to allow what God forbids. I'm helped by Alistair Begg, who says, some people think that Christianity is about a new form of externalism. They once did this, and this, and this, and those were kind of bad, and now they're interested in, in Jesus, and they do these new things that are seemingly better. And they want to say that now they're Christians. They once were doing pagan things, but now they're doing Christian things. But the sad reality is they, that they are still not Christian doing Christian things. It's not enough to merely change your behavior. And that's what Paul is, is making clear. That's so deadly in these false teachers is they're willing to forbid what it is that God has revealed and said is good. And in doing that, they're holding on to this form of religion that is toxic because it's about what they can do 
to earn right standing before God. And look, it may sound silly because not a lot of people are going, hey, we're going to forbid marriage in order to find favor with God. We're going to not eat certain foods in order to find favor with God. It might sound silly to you and I today, but I wonder just how far off we really are. Hey, if I do these things, I'm going to find favor with God today. Hey, if I avoid these things, I can find favor with God today. But the sad reality is that until we come to acknowledge that we are sinners in need of a Savior and we turn from any works that would seek to earn us favor with God, we are damned. We are hell-bound. If we begin to add to God's Word, then in the addition we have sadly subtracted. And Paul says, whenever you do that to the truth and to the gospel, then you no longer have the truth and the gospel. You see, the problem that faces all of us and that sort of sits behind this desire to want to do things in order to earn favor with God is that we were all created to bear His image and to reflect His glory and to enjoy His presence. And Adam and Eve, who are our first parents and our representatives, they rejected that good creation order. And in their sin, they plunged themselves and all of humanity into a world of chaos and and into rightly deserved judgment. And though you and I have gone our own way, we followed in that. We are both sinners by nature, we're sinners by choice. We have incurred God's just judgment for our sin. And we begin to think, how in the world are we made right with God? And these false teachers would say, if you believe and do this. And the this they were saying was saying, uh, the spiritual is, is good, physical is bad. Well, the only problem, maybe the greatest thing standing between that false teaching and the truth is the fact that God himself would take on flesh. He would come and he would live among us. Not so that he could make clear that the physical was bad, but so that he could show that there's redemption available for what's broken. And he, God has he sent Christ to, to earth to live a judgment-free life and to die the death on the cross for those who rightly incurred his judgment. Christ was the substitute. Christ was the one who stood in the place of guilty sinners. The innocent in the stead of the guilty. Christ is the one who died to free us from the curse of the law and our guilt. And Christ is the one who rose on the third day, making clear that his payment was sufficient to cover the needs on the table. And so if you're not a Christian this morning, I would just plead with you, turn from your sin, stop trying to work either by what you're doing or what you're avoiding. Stop trying to work to earn God's favor and his approval. You cannot stand rightly before God if all you have are your good works. They're insufficient. 
And the law is meant to remind you over and over again, not just of a perfect law keeper, but the fact that you and I are unable to keep it perfectly. Praise be to God, Christ has come. And Christ has done for us what we could not do. And if you're not a Christian this morning, I plead with you, turn to Christ who gave his life once for all, for all who would turn from their sin and place their faith and trust in him alone. The Christian life is not about trusting a bunch of rules. It's living by faith in Jesus Christ. Any attempt to unhitch Christian morality from Christ is a death blow to the Christian faith. Leads us to our last point. Number four, believe the cure. This, these five verses have made clear the calamity. Now believe the cure, verses four and five. Paul says that God has made everything good. For everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it's received with gratitude, for it is sanctified by, me, by means of the word of God and prayer. Paul says God has, everything God's made is good. He's created the world to be enjoyed. It's fallen, yes, but the problem isn't food. It's not marriage. It's not sex in marriage. The problem is our sin. They didn't need to put marriage away. They didn't need to put food away. They needed to put their sin away in order to rightly engage with the good things God has given. In fact, there may have been a problem where these false teachers were looking and were going, we're getting this all wrong. We're acting as though this is ultimate. And so again, even false teaching, wanting to begin from a place of good desire and intentions. Marriage and sexual sexual relation in marriage between a natural-born man and a natural-born woman is good. It's the only kind of sex that is good. And food, whatever you want today, all foods are clean, no matter what the labels say. Not, not that kind of clean, you. Legalism lies about God. It slaps this sticker on everything that says off-limits, and it presents God as this arbitrary cosmic killjoy who doesn't want people to enjoy life too much. But the Bible's clear that God is not miserly. And in fact, his good protection and the spirit wrought kind of wisdom that we are to navigate this life with and by is intending to lead us to a place of freedom. And again, it's just good to always remember, brothers and sisters, true freedom is not the freedom to do whatever we want. That's actually the definition of slavery. True freedom is to live as we were created, to engage in creation within the bounds of God's design. That's what freedom is. And we can't we can't get that apart from faith in Christ. God's good gifts are to be received because they're good. That's Genesis 1 language. And they are to be received with gratitude. 
God's good gifts are to be received by us for the purpose of giving thanks to God. Things in creation are purposed for our thankfulness. The word there, sanctified, it says, for it is sanctified by means of the word of God in prayer. That word in verse 5 means made holy. God's good creation is made holy by the means of God's word. He says it was good, and also by our prayers. When we pray to God, thanking him for the good gifts, then we're making clear that the ultimate purpose of the gifts are not to be enjoyed as though they are ultimate. But it's meant to stir up praise and us saying, God, yes, you have given us good gifts, and we are thanking you for these good gifts. These false teachers denied God's good gifts in creation, and it robbed God of his glory and his praise, and they denied God's truth that was clearly revealed in his word. And yet we are here on this side of the cross, on this side of faith, receiving and giving thanks, humbly and happily setting apart the good of this creation because God has said it was good, and we evidence that by our prayers of thankfulness and gratitude. Are you thankful? I mean, is that one of the core kind of uh, descriptors that carry you throughout your day? Gratitude? Enjoying the gifts of God for what they are? Not ultimate, but gifts to be enjoyed that's meant to encourage your heart to grow in love for the giver. That's at the root of our gratitude. That's what the Christian life is about. And even before us this morning, that's what this table is all about. You see, God has given his people a celebratory meal of thanksgiving. We receive God's good gifts and creation because he said they were good, and we do it with thanksgiving and prayer. And God has given a meal whereby all Christians are reminded of his good gift of salvation. And this meal itself, it stands as a visible reminder of a body that was broken and blood that was shed for the forgiveness of sins. And so I just want to be clear, this meal is not for anyone and everyone. It's only for those who have turned from their sins and who trusted in Christ alone so that they can be forgiven of their sin. And so if you're here and you've not done that, then we would just encourage you. There's no shame in just sitting and praying and saying, God, would you give me eyes to see and ears to hear and faith to believe? But this meal isn't also, it, it, neither is it an individualized meal. It's not, this isn't sort of the you and Jesus uh, date, uh, dinner date. No, this is a meal for those who have been baptized and who are members in good standing of a church that preaches the same gospel message that you heard this morning. This meal isn't for those who will not give up their sin. It's for those that are willing and ready and who do walk in a manner that's in keeping with repentance. And this meal isn't just for those uh, this meal isn't for those that are living in broken relationships with other brothers and sisters in Christ. You see, baptism is where the one, the individual, is brought into the many. The Lord's Supper is where the many are made one. 
And we lie about that unity whenever we harbor anger and division against other brothers and sisters in Christ. This isn't a meal for perfect people. It's for those that are in need of the perfection of Christ. Coming and taking this meal doesn't earn you right standing before God just as much as abstaining from marriage or food can. And in fact, if you try to earn right standing before God through it, you are actually drinking judgment upon yourself. This is what Paul talks about in the letter to the Corinth, uh, the church at Corinth. This meal is to be enjoyed because Christ has given you right fellowship. And so I'm going to pray. And when I say amen, I would encourage you to just give thought to your sin. And as you give thought to your sin, to remember the body that was broken and blood that was shed so that there can be forgiveness of that sin, for that one look that you take to your sin, I pray that on your way, standing in line and coming up, you would take 10 looks to Christ, allowing your heart to be flooded with joy. And so I will pray. Music will begin to play. Feel free to come take the elements. You can go back to your seat, and we will observe the supper together. Let's pray. Our holy God, we come to this part of our gathering, and in many ways, this meal together is what makes us a local church. And so I pray that you would help us rightly consider our sin. May we be willing to turn away from it, walk away from it, give it up, all of it. And I pray that as you find willing hearts that are ready to do that, then I pray that we would be able to feast on these temporary elements all the while longing for the day when we get to sit with the Lamb at the marriage supper. And so be honored as we partake, and we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.